This meeting is being recorded. Good morning, everybody, or probably afternoon when you're seeing this. Happy Preakness Saturday. Today is Saturday, May the 21st, 2022. You are watching or listening to another edition of the Great Forward Maryland podcast. I'm Bill Woodcock. I'm Steve Hunt. And in honor of today's guest, for this weekend, this show is all out of bubblegum. It absolutely is all out of bubblegum. So today we are going for a rousing mixture of, of pop culture topics. Certainly we're going to be talking about politics, but we're going to also be talking about other matters of a sporting nature. Uh, you may notice that Steve and I are wearing our Orioles gear. Steve uh, is, is all often festooned with his Jackie Robinson hat. Um, you know, in honor of the next phase of the rebuild of the great Baltimore Orioles, um, starting today with the with the call up of baseball's number one prospect for the last two years, Adley Rutschman. Today's guest, uh, I believe, has had the honor of throwing out the first pitch at Camden Yards, sure. yet his major allegiance is to his Washington Nationals. And we invite and we welcome to the podcast today, way too long in coming, but thank God he's here, uh, political analyst, uh, principal of Tread Avon Strategies, and all around a terrific Democrat and good guy, Len Foxwell. Len, Mr. welcome. Woodcock, Mr. Hunt, it is an honor and a privilege, as James Carville said in old school, it is an honor to be here, sir. <laughs> and, and, and Len, Len we, we, we just described the amazingly long amount of time we've known each other in the pre-show. Uh, you may, you may want to may want to mention that because it's embarrassing to both of us. Oh my goodness. Well, we're, before we all went on the air, we were talking about how old we were. And I reminded Bill that I know exactly how old you are because the first time I met Bill was in the fall of 1991 at the Young Democrats of Maryland State Convention at the Timonium Fairgrounds. And I was just a young, humble uh, undergraduate at Salisbury State University who was doing some work in the first congressional district for the spirited but ill-fated presidential bid of Iowa Senator Tom Harkin. And I was up there to spread the, the good word of the Iowa Senator. And I was handing out my leaflets and my walk pieces and all of a sudden, Steve, you should have seen this whole scene. The only thing, the only thing that was missing was the theme from 2001, A Space Odyssey. <laughs> here true. comes this guy this walking down that immortal aisle, surrounded by sycophants and acolytes and hangers-on and fans and well-wishers. And I was like, who in God's name is this guy? <laughs> Turns out there's nothing, none, no one less than the esteemed president of the Young Democrats of Maryland, Mr. Bill Woodcock. He gets up and gives his speech and all that, and standing ovation. And I said, I want to be that guy when I grow up. I don't know what he does. I don't know where he's going, but I want to be that guy. And here we are 31 years later, and we're still kicking around, talking politics, talking about the Democratic Party and looking forward to the next election. So the more things change, I guess the more things stay the same. And, and you honor and humble me, sir, because in your career, you have gotten to be that guy uh, in, in a number of, of prestigious positions and, 
and uh, areas of influence in your career. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy for you in your new phase and uh, wishing you all the best. How is, uh, how is business at Trent Avon before we jump into the meat and potatoes? Bill, I'm having the time of my life. I gotta say, I'm, uh, it's been a wild ride, but I am loving what I'm doing. I love the freedom. I love the flexibility. I love getting to learn new things and meet new people that I just never would have been in a position to uh, spend time with in the old days when I was really tied to one candidate and one organization. Um, yeah, as you know, I'm doing work now for Rashawn Baker's gubernatorial campaign, and he is just one of the just one of the most special people in Maryland politics. And he's obviously a distinguished career as a delegate, chairman of the Prince George's delegation, and now. And then obviously two terms as county executive, but he is just such a remarkable person who has been through so much adversity and has never lost his fundamental kindness and graciousness. Um, and that just is reflected throughout his family. Uh, I'm also working for a, a terrific guy in the first congressional district named Dave Harden, a retired foreign service officer and diplomat who's been in several, several of the world's uh, most dangerous hotspots, negotiating the peace and preserving U.S. interests abroad. And I also have a, a series of legislative and council manic candidates. One of the things, one of the candidates you might be interested in, Bill, because we, you know, you know about my background as an alcohol regulator. I'm actually working for a Republican this this cycle. A guy down in the fifth council manic district of Dorchester mm -hmm. County named William Layton. He is the founder and owner of Layton's Chance Winery, which is one of the great innovators and job creators and economic drivers in Dorchester County. And I feel like I can work for a Republican because it's the fifth district. There are more cattle than people and more chickens than people. And no Democrat's going to be winning there for the next 30 years, at least. Uh, so I figure it's a, it's going to, it's a boil down to a choice between a sane, moderate Republican and one of these alt-right lunatics that's driving the entire political discourse off the cliff. So it's a long-winded way of saying things are really good and I'm very happy. And I appreciate that. Is that. Terrific. that is terrific. That is terrific. terrific. Hey, I would love to get deeper into like all of this. Steve, I, I'm sorry. I think I cut you off. No, 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 Bill. I'm, I'm sorry. We'll probably do it to each other a lot. This is going to be a, an interesting show with an interesting guest and, uh, you know, really timely with those the first two candidates you talked about, Len, especially with Hardman, and you you talked about well with your council manic uh, candidate, you know, saying Republican versus alt right. And speaking of alt right, you know, any thoughts with the Harmony campaign about Mr. Alt Right himself, Andy Harris, uh, taking a little junket to Hungary to uh, hang out with CPAC, which somehow now loves to go places that are run by dictators. <laughs> I mean. I mean, I'm old enough to have grown up in a time when the Republican Party was the party of anti-communism and anti-totalitarianism and anti, you know, and, and breaking and breaking down the, the Soviet empire, right? That was what Ronald Reagan was all about. I guess I just missed this sea change in American politics where all of a sudden it became de rigueur for the, for far right, Republicans to will, willingly and brazen, brazenly associate themselves with Russia, totalitarian dictatorships, um, Putin. And right there in the middle of it is our first district congressman, 
who was an absolute national embarrassment. This is a guy who actively supported the January 6th insurrection. He opposed um, extending health care benefits for first responders uh, at 9-11 who literally put their health and their lives on the line to save Americans after that terrible, terrible day. The guy opposed the awarding of the Congressional Gold Medal to the U.S. Capitol officers who defended the Capitol against the rioters on January 6th. This is a pro-Putin, pro-criminal, pro-lawlessness, anti-first responder, anti-police congressman, and he is a and he is the favorite to win re-election at this point because we have a, a redistricting system that is fundamentally broken. Mm-hmm. Could not could not agree more. Dave Harden, of course, as you probably know, Len, is a friend of this podcast. We were pleased to have him on. Um, he would be where my vote would be were I in the first congressional district. And I'm I'm really happy to know that you're working that race. I know um, you know, he's still got some work to do in the primary, but uh, I think you know he's a guy who certainly mirrors the values and the and the gestalt of of the fighting first. So you're absolutely good right. Good luck you, with that and with everything you. else. Thanks. Um, so to so to to start our barrel roll into into uh, into various uh, and sundry topics. So Len, I think the first thing we talked about this. You know, we can change, but we can talk about, you know, we talked about this. I'm up for whatever, Incidentally, man. incidentally, you know, uh, you know, we have our, our gubernatorial top 10 monthly, um, you know, it's been noted. And I, I'd also like to get in a quick plug for the Maryland politics uh, group on Facebook. Uh, Len, you and I both know fairly well the, the, uh, the proprietor of that list, Mr. Barry O'Connell, also a friend of the podcast. Um, you know, we post our, our podcast episodes on, on his group all the time. Uh, don't always give him the proper attribution and, and thank you for his support, but very good guy. But, uh, you know, you see, we always do the top 10. The top 10 was, you know, to, again, cross topics inspired by that good old fashioned pro wrestling illustrated all time top 10. Every month, you know, you got to see, was Flair on top of Hogan in the mythical top 10? Was Hogan on top of Flair? Where was Bret Hart versus, say, Alex Luger? You know, we couldn't tell. So we put them all together. Uh, And I guess where we've kind of come up in our top 10 and appropriate for Preakness Day and also appropriate because Len, you and I are are supporting different candidates, although I I love uh, Mr. Baker. And I know, of course, you have a long uh, record with with uh, Mr. Francho, but it seems like it's a horse race on on both sides. Uh, Cox and and Schultz on the Republican side. I would venture, and Steve, feel free to also chime in. Um, Baker, Moore, and Francho on the Democratic side, with maybe a couple dark horses who could come up and you know pull off an upset. Where where do you where 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 do you see this right now about six weeks out? So I think at this point, unless until we get some objective survey research that tells us something different, I think you have to consider Peter Franco to be the front runner. He's uh, 
it's it's in, you know it's interesting that we've seen different candidates, including my candidate, who has produced sponsored polls that show different candidates in second place, and everything that we've seen uh, up to up to this one that came out from Westmore earlier this week has Rashawn Baker in second, but every but every poll that we've seen up to this point has Peter in first. And so he's got to be considered the front runner. He has the edge in name recognition. He has uh, assiduously courted and built a statewide organization over his, well, not just his 35 years in public office, but you know, nearly 16 years as state comptroller. And so uh, until something breaks, you know, to, to fundamentally upend that dynamic, Peter's got to be considered the front runner. Westmore is a formidable candidate. He has money. He has an inspiring narrative. I don't know where he's going to go with this whole thing regarding the discrepancies between his background um, as published in his book and uh, what has been discovered through investigative reporting and dossiers and other campaigns. Um, my gut tells me that he has survived that initial flurry because it came out early and voters have to always ask themselves, well, how does it affect me? Right. You know, we're dealing in a situation, we're dealing in a world now where inflation is at 8%. The price of gasoline is ascending to levels that we've never seen before. The cryptocurrency market, the traditional equities markets are absolutely collapsing. And with it, life savings, retirement savings, home savings, college savings, uh, price of food, you know, dairy and meat are going going up. So, when the when the Maryland voter is looking at their choices and they see that well, Westmore may not have been born in West Baltimore. Instead, maybe he was born in Tacoma Park and and moved away at a young age. A lot of people are just going to say, "Who cares? Who's going to fix my problems?" Mm -hmm. And so that's, but it remains to be seen. And I think one of the challenges that all of us are dealing with in this election cycle is the absence of independent polling. I mean, we're, all three of us are old enough to remember a time when at some point, an objective news organization like the Baltimore Sun or the Washington Post would come out with a poll um, that would kind of really set definitively where the field is at this moment in time. And for various reasons, having everything to do with the decline of the news media, we're not seeing that this year. So we're just relying on a bunch of independent polls with different methodologies, different point, you know, different sample sizes, different assumptions about the demographic. And it's hard to figure out what's real and what's not. But that's just what my gut is right now on the on the Democratic side. Mm -hmm. Steve, yeah, anything on yeah. that? Yeah, well, just related to that. And, and first of all, you know, in our last top 10, you know, I referenced the ad uh, that was recently run by Rashard Baker. Um, full disclosure to everybody, I've said this several times, I grew up in Prince George's County, was there until about 2000. So I'm a Prince George's County kid uh, myself. So I'm very familiar with the Baker story. Um, that ad was very impressive. And I told Bill it was as animated as I've ever seen the former county executive. He uttered the word damn, which I did not know was in his vocabulary. Yeah. So, uh, and I saw a recent um, interview uh, where he was talking about Baltimore, I believe it was the squeegee kids. He's, he's done a lot of things in Baltimore, made a lot of promises. He's going to move an office there. It, you know, is, is that something that 
you think will resonate with folks that he has really put Baltimore, along with his native Prince George's County, you know, front and center in terms of his campaign and the things he's talking about? Yeah, Steve, I, I think it will, and I believe it has. One thing that keeps coming up in all of our survey research, and in this case, the, the plural of anecdote is data. That you hear it, and you hear people talking about it, and it's also being substantiated in our research. People genuinely are afraid about the future of Baltimore City, and you don't have to be a resident of the city to understand what this city means to the state as our centerpiece of of, of industry, of commerce, of culture, of medicine and education, Johns Hopkins and the Port of Baltimore, and if you. There, there is just an understanding whether people articulate it this way or not. There's, not there's, a, there's a recognition that if Baltimore is sick and people are afraid to come into Baltimore and get out of their cars and leave their hotel rooms or roll down their windows because they, they may get shot, mm -hmm. that has, a, that has a, a drastic effect on the reputation and the economy and really the soul of the entire state. So... What's remarkable since Rashern's been running the ad, which we titled 2000 in recognition of the more than 2000 souls that have been murdered in Baltimore over the past eight years, most of them young black men. Most of the favorable comments have come not from within the city, but in the surrounding areas and even places like Western Maryland and the Eastern shore. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a heck of an ad and, 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 um, you know, just to, to pivot real quick, since, you know, you, you, you obviously keep it on both sides of the house. Um, you know, we've talked about in our top 10 that it, it seems to be Dan Cox's world and Kelly Schultz is just living in it. Um, are, are we off there? It, it just feels to me like Kelly Schultz is treading water. And unless Dan Cox finds some magical way to make himself radioactive to the Republican primary electorate, He's going to be the person we're looking at in the fall on the other side of the aisle. Uh, what are your thoughts on that particular race between those two? Uh, you know, Robin Ficker is pretty much in Secretary at 1973 territory, uh, speaking of horse races. But uh, what do you think about the the one-on-one -on -one going on on the Republican side? Well, I think your analysis is prescient, Steve, because I have every confidence that if every Republican voter had their say in this upcoming primary, Kelly Schultz would glide to a comfortable win, but that's not going to be the case because we have, I mean, the, the, the having a primary elections in the middle of summer anyway has been really not a great service to the voters of the state in terms of engagement and turnout. In 2018, we had a statewide turnout in the primaries of 24%. Now the June primary has been pushed back a month because of all the confusion regarding redistricting. So now we are literally going to be voting in the dead of summer when a substantial portion of the population is gonna be on vacation. And as we know, Republicans like to vote on the day of the, the election and not participate in remote voting opportunities. It's, so in these low turnout primaries, passion and energy become the coins of the realm. And at this point, I agree with you. Cox has it and Kelly doesn't. And it's a shame because I believe Dan Cox is a terrible person. And I believe he is a terrible legislator. Uh, this is a guy who has made money defending child rapists. 
He was an active participant in January 6th, but unfortunately he is a reflection of where the Republican party base is in the moment. And he, like him or not, he is saying something that is appealing to that base. And I'm not hearing that same energy urgency from Secretary Schultz at this point. Um, I like Kelly a great deal and she's gonna have to pick it up. She's gonna have to pick up the pace. She's gonna have to shift into a second and third gear. Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, you know, this, I mean, Lynn, I mean, the number of, of, I mean, it's bad enough, I think, that Cox has the support of so much Republican rank and file, and of course, egged on by a endorsement from the 45th president, but also uh, when I talk to prominent Republicans in Howard County and elsewhere around the state who I have known for years, um, you know, there's a there's a groundswell there amongst the, the political elite of the Republican Party that Cox is the person. And it, it, it's sad to me on a number of ways, because I, I think uh, far and away, to your point, I think Kelly Schultz is, is definitely the most well qualified candidate on the Republican side. I would venture to say more well qualified just on paper, not saying I agree than most of the Democrats, to be quite frank. Uh, and, um, you know, and it's also ghastly to me because it, it also to me speaks to how short the Hogan coattails are. I mean, we saw that in the re-election campaign in 2018, you know, with the drive for five uh, senators to beat the supermajority, and I think they only got one. Yeah. Um, you know, so... You know, and of course, as he launches into, you know, what might be a chaotic, or is it quixotic, uh, 2024 <laughs> presidential campaign, um, you know, that, 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 you know, the, the, uh, the shortness of those coattails, I think it's, it's really going to hurt her, um, you know, and help, and, and, and help Cox. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not the Brown uh, O'Malley coattails of, of 2014, where I, I think there was negative spirit towards O'Malley that that hurt Anthony Brown. But it's just it's just nothing. It's just a flat black bleh. Um, You know, there's no there's no if you want to continue my legacy as governor, elect Kelly Schultz. I mean, he endorsed her, I think. I'm pretty sure that happened. He did. But it was yeah. not, you know, I, know, I don't see these full-throated. I mean, the first ad is her in a classroom talking about broad position points. It's not, you know, if you love, still love Larry Hogan, who is still at 60 70% approval, you're going to love me. So I, I agree with you. Something's got to change in that game or else it's going to be over. And I think that not only would it be, you know, obviously not only is this hurtful to Secretary Schultz, but if she does fall in the Republican primary to Dan Cox. I think that has a, a severe, if not a catastrophic effect on Larry Hogan's national ambitions. I go back to 1986 when, and few people remember this because they ultimately decided not to run, but there was a Nevada Senator named Paul Laxalt mm -hmm. who, was, who was gearing up to seek the 1980 Republican nomination. He had been Reagan's national campaign chairman. He was a he was regarded as a 
true Reagan conservative as opposed to George H.W. Bush, who was wide, widely regarded with suspicion by the conservative true believers as a Northeastern Republican moderate. And Laxalt was gearing up to inherit the Reagan mantle, but then he, his handpicked successor to, uh, to take over his Senate seat in Nevada lost. And he never quite bounced back from that because the rationale when, and it's hard to argue this, if you can't police your own backyard, if your if your record and your vision and your brand aren't strong enough to even hold serve in your home state, then what chance do you have to win the hearts and minds of Iowans and New Hampshireites and South Carolinians? So it's more than just Kelly Schultz on the line here. It's Larry Hogan on the line because this is a proxy battle between Hogan and Trump. Mm -hmm. This isn't Cox Schultz. This is Hogan Trump. And if Cox wins that nomination, then that means that Trump has come in and put a knot on Larry Hogan's head. And right. the Hogan operation had better get serious about this and start doing better than what they've done up to this point. Because right now it's just not good enough. Yeah, it's absolutely sucked. Uh, I, I dropped the name of Anthony Brown uh, while we're talking about our statewide races. That seems like a logical next one to talk about. Um, the... the uh, the uh, undercard on 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 uh, or the the next to uh, main event match on the card of Maryland politics this year would be the attorney general's race, which has gotten amazingly little press. Um, you know, to your point, Len, about the the uh, the state of of coverage of local and state affairs and and our major news sources. Uh, I'm dumbfounded. You know, as somebody, you know. Len, we've known all the same people. I can remember sitting with Martin O'Malley in my dorm room at Hopkins in 88 talking about the Gary Hart campaign. Uh, and to see Katie O'Malley and, and, you know, and running against her husband's former lieutenant governor, like I said, I'm dumbfounded. It's amazing to me. Um, you know, I understand attorney general seats uh, don't grow on trees. So we got two people going for the same one. Um, but, you know, at one point they were in the same tree and and they're not. And uh, by all accounts I'm seeing, and again, not a lot of objective polling, but, you know, the winds seem to be blowing towards uh, and, uh, uh, O'Malley. What, 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 do you, what, do you, what do you see there? I agree with everything you just said, Bill. This is a race where I, I think I would love to see some independent objective polling. I've seen I've seen polls that have been pushed out by the Brown campaign to show them with a comfortable lead. I don't take them seriously. I just don't. I don't see where Anthony. You know, there there may be a groundswell of support for Anthony that is subterranean, and to be sure, he is a he has had a remarkably distinguished career as a state delegate, as lieutenant governor, as a U.S. congressman, and, he's, and he comes from Prince George's County, which is the single biggest repository of Democratic primary votes historically. So maybe, maybe, maybe he is in good shape. Everything I see out in the field and on the ground is, is all about Katie O'Malley. She has energy. 
she, and she has she she has she has a, a sign program. And I this is the part where a bunch of people are gonna call in and say signs don't vote. But you know, signs do matter. They were they they reflect certain things. Of course, signs don't vote, but they reflect certain things. Someone actually has to get the signs out into the communities. Someone has to nail the signs down and to drive the stakes into the ground. Someone has to knock on the door of that of that prominent person in that community and ask if they can have can put a sign in that front yard. Someone has to go to that central committee meeting and hand the signs out in the first place. So it reflects boots on the ground. It reflects a true campaign operation. It reflects action and energy. And you know, I'm, I'm here in Cambridge this morning, and I uh, and I took a I took a bike ride this morning before it got to be too hot. And I counted in downtown Cambridge, which is no one's idea of a democratic stronghold. I counted six Katie O'Malley signs in the West End. And we're not just talking about bandit signs next to the Coldwell Banker you know, right. house. We're talking about signs actually in the lawns of prominent people of stature who I know and respect. And I have not seen a brown sign anywhere. So... <laughs> You know, I, I know it's going to be crazy to say, well, you, Foxwell, you can't you can't judge a race based on the number of signs. But I don't have anything else to go on at this point. The people I know and respect in Democratic circles are strongly behind Katie O'Malley. We had a test of strength last week out in uh, Western Maryland, and yes, Katie right. O'Malley won that convincingly. Uh, your candidate, Bill Peter Franco, got ten votes, I believe, at that thing, which was so I saw. One vote for yeah. every 150 gold coins he's handed out in that wonderful region of the state over the years. But Katie O'Malley, uh, in every, by every visible metric of political, of, of political success, seems to be outpointing Brown at this point. Mm -hmm. Incidentally, Land Barry O'Connell tells us that Westmore bust people in well, to the Western Maryland summit to have people vote for him. Well, of course he busts people in. That's that's part of the game. I mean, that's, yep. you know, uh, but Peter Stock and Trade, and, and, and since we're going back to this, Peter Stock and Trade is, is that he is the guy who can win everywhere. He's the guy right. who can expand the political map for the Democrats by winning in areas where Democrats traditionally struggle in this day and age. And if you're going to go out to Western Maryland as the quote unquote local candidate, well, you got to play it to win it, man. Mm hmm. Not yeah. Absolutely. I mean, he he put he put eleven hundred people into a into a uh, into a um, a catering hall in Prince George's County. Yeah. If he had redirected twenty percent of that and put them on a bus to go out to Cumberland, he would have won the straw poll, mm -hmm. and so, the entire narrative would have been different. Right, right, right. You don't need you don't need to don't need to commit unforced errors. I as I like to say. And, you know, and and give you know give you know give oxygen to your opponents. Correct. So speaking to your point about signs and yep. and to wrap up the uh, statewide races, uh, I was in Western Maryland last weekend. I did not attend the Great Western Maryland Summit. Um, been there, done that. Wore a T-shirt one one year, but uh, I did go out to uh, do some hiking. Uh, out in gorgeous Frostburg, uh, Maryland. Oh, and my son's alma mater. Um, you know, of, of course, you know, another name drop. My daughter is, of course, a proud fellow Seagull Len. Nice. But, uh, but 
the thing that I noticed and whose signs I noticed were quite prominent uh, amongst the highways and uh, even in the town of Frostburg was for none other than one Tim Adams. Tim! For controller. My man. Uh, however, the first statewide candidate sign that I have seen in my own humble village of Oakland Mills, and specifically in my very own Stevens Forest neighborhood, was for Brooke Learman, who mysteriously has had a three by five sign erected at the Stevens Forest Neighborhood Center. I give that about two days before it gets torn down because you can't have signs at the neighborhood center. So someone went through a lot of trouble to put up a sign that they shouldn't have had there. So, uh, you know, I, you know, my handicapping of this is, is Learman's ahead. Um, you know, I, I like Tim Adams. I think he speaks very well <clears throat> on economic issues. And as you know, having worked with Mr. Francho for so long, Len, um, you know, um, the issue, you know, the, the controller's office is about economics and providing, you know, providing for the citizens. Um, you know, uh, I find Brooks, uh, um sales pitch to be a little bit tangential to that coming skimming off the atmosphere of that and talking about more social engineering type issues which are not really directly the controller's responsibility but she goes there but you know to a point that others make um you know that's the stuff that sells uh, because you know talking about you know uh easing the uh you know, uh, doing away with the $300 tax burden for LLCs, you know, makes people's eyes glaze over. But, um, you know, using the controller's office to create economic opportunity, you know, that perks up people's ears. And, you know, uh, using the controller's office to end systemic racism, uh, you know, throws red meat at the base. Um, how are you handicapping this? Well, I think it's another race where I would give my kingdom to see an independent poll. And I, I apologize for continuing to beat that dead horse. But it's an intriguing race because it really is a contrast of two fundamentally different styles and two completely different approaches to this campaign. Brooke Learman has run the best technical campaign in the entire field. And I'm not just talking about comptroller. I'm talking about governor, comptroller, attorney general. Brooke Learman is the best in show. I mean, she has really been done a, she's really, you know, provided a master's class in how to go out and build a statewide organization and, call, and, and um, cultivate thought leaders, influencers, party leaders. And the fact that she does have such a broad base of support uh, from central committee leaders and club presidents and labor and environmentalists. It really is a testament to the work that she's done, not only on this campaign, but the work that she's done as a delegate uh, in the six years leading up to this campaign. I, I, There's gotta be some pang of regret, although she'll never cop to it, that she didn't jump into the gubernatorial race maybe mm -hmm. early when the fields were kind of unsettled. I agree. Because I think- I agree. Uh, given her issues, given, given the issues that she speaks most naturally to, and given the, given the elevated concern about the future of women's reproductive freedoms in light of the SCOTUS yeah. draft decision, I, she would have been a formidable 
if not the mm -hmm. front running gubernatorial candidate. All of this said, Tim Adams has a different approach. Tim's going to write a check for $2 million and go up on the air. And if this were a gubernatorial race, I'd sit right here and say, that's not good enough. You can't win a governor's race solely through the air. You've got to have some blend of air and grass tips and grassroots. Comptroller is a different race, though. People don't know what a comptroller does. They don't necessarily care what a comptroller does. They don't know whether it's it's just it's another office they vote for down the ballot. And some people around the state probably still think Louis Goldstein is the proud occupant of the job. Yeah. So in a race where, you know, quick instantaneous name recognition may carry more weight than some other races around the state, Tim's strategy might be a winner. I just don't know. But I will say this, Tim Adams, and I know what I'm talking about because I've, I was chief of staff in that office for over a decade. Tim Adams, by virtue of his background and experience, is the single most qualified candidate who has ever sought that position. Hmm. He, is, I mean, he is a CEO. He is someone who made it to the top of the aerospace industry as a black man uh, at a time when it was the exclusive domain of good old boy, white Southern gentleman, quote unquote. And you talk about someone who knows business, understands the tax code, understands procurement law. He has a sophisticated understanding of these issues, and he is someone who is prepared to hit the ground running. It's a choice between two very, very good candidates. Mm -hmm. I actually like them both. Yeah, they, they are both yeah. excellent. And point well taken. I mean, I, I kind of see Brooke Learman's campaign as you know, trial balloons for maybe governor 2026. Yeah. Um, but, but, um, you know, I agree. I think she could have truly been a contender this time. Steve, I see you chomping at yeah. the No, I, I was just going to uh, jump in as well with that, because I, I wonder if, if Peter Francho had said, I'm not running again for comptroller, I'm going to retire. Would Brooke Learman have run for governor with, with no Peter Francho out there? And, and the other thing that you're right about the uh, Tim Adams strategy, because as a young guy, I didn't even know what a Maryland state comptroller was until I started seeing Louis Goldstein ads on what the three or four TV stations we had. Right. Back then. I'm Louis Sale Goldstein. I mean, it, you, I can hear that voice in my head right now. And, and that, I was like, oh, so there is such a thing. But anyway, uh, you know, pivoting here, you mentioned earlier about um, maps and and uh, and the redistricting and how it was a mess. And I certainly agree with you uh, that it was a mess. And one of the fallouts is we now are going to have a primary in July. Uh, you know, I had said if you're going to go that far, just do it after you know, do it after Labor Day. Just make a make it a short sprint to the general election as opposed to dead of summer. But you know, the process was messy. Um, but we are where we are. And, and one of the interesting things for Bill and myself is we now have a new congressional district three that is, you know, no longer the pterodactyl, uh, nor is it the Tyrannosaurus Rex that was originally proposed. It's pretty clean. Howard County is now in the mix. So, you, you know, give us your thoughts on the process and how we got here. And then what are some of the possibilities as far as, you know, who might be, who might be, who might we be looking at in Congress and say 2024 with the new maps? Obviously, you're involved in District One. How that affected that race, and um, you know, Andy Harris's possibilities or probabilities of staying in office. Just give us your overall thoughts on 
this whole mess that we went through just getting maps, which should be a lot simpler. Well, Steve, I think you can look at what happened over the course of several months and realize that none, none of this is how any of this all work. The whole thing was a calamity. And I actually teach a class on this. I actually, I actually wrap a creative uh, professional writing and communication class at Johns Hopkins, Bill's alma mater, around the subject of political reform. And we actually take a look at the redistricting process. And so we saw two, we saw two flawed approaches on display here. One, the, the process by which the governor submits the maps to the legislature for legislative approval. I don't like it. I think it's, I, I never think it's, I, I don't think it's ever a great idea for, for self-interested legislators, and I cast no aspersions on my friends in the General Assembly, but they are just, they have an interest in the outcome, whether it's direct or indirect. I don't think that they should be in the business of picking the lines for the voters. At the same time, I don't put a great deal of stock in this notion of, quote unquote, an independent redistricting commission. And why I say that is that, as we saw with Larry Hogan's so-called so independent redistricting commission, if you have risen through the political and civic ranks and have attained a level of prominence that makes you a candidate for this kind of a job, then you're not politically independent. You have political relationships. Right. That's something what my students actually pointed out. How can you be independent if you are such a big wig, if you're such a big shot, that the governor of Maryland will put you on this commission. So um, what I'm really attracted to, Steve, is mm -hmm. something that was done by the state of Missouri. And it, it made so much sense. And it was such a good idea that the yahoos out in Missouri actually repeal it two years later. But, it's, <laughs> but decisive map-making authority in the hands of a state demographer hmm. you know, and with working with other people, you know, but basically civil servants, you have to have, yeah. and you would have to be a registered independent. You would have to, you know, you would have to have no prior history as a political candidate for office or anything like that. But basically uh, a, you know, in, in Missouri, it was actually put in the state auditor's office in Maryland, I would suggest that it would be best placed in the Maryland Department of Planning. Uh, and that person working with you know, other demographers and data, data analysts actually come up with the maps that fulfill those prerequisites of compactness, respect for local jurisdictional boundaries, conjoining communities of shared interests and whatnot. Um, I think that's I think that's the best idea I've heard up to this point. I'm not mm -hmm. optimistic it's ever going to happen, Steve, because for that to happen, you'd have to ask politicians to do the hardest thing that any politician would do, which is willfully surrender their own power. Yeah. Yeah. They, they don't they don't do that very well. No. Amazing, amazing how that works. No. But, Imagine but, that. But you know, I mean, our our days of I mean, I, I we grew up here in Howard County having Goodloe Byron as the sixth district congressperson. And then of course Beverly after 
she after he died. But that whole concept of putting communities together and keeping them co- together because they share common problems, not necessarily common values, but common problems. Correct. And so find who would be the right person, regardless of party, to fix those problems. That used to be the bellwether. And, you know, um, the, the very noble concept and practice of voting rights became, as many good ideas have, bastardized to be turned into political advantage. And again, this is a chief cause of the erosion in trust in government, of the erosion of people to believe in their government, and it gives rise to extreme lunacy on on either side. Um, And I don't think I'm being too alarmist by drawing connections there. I completely agree. And if we you know, look at the downward trend in voter participation in primary and general elections, particularly in off-cycle, you know, in um, gubernatorial or midterm primaries. My conclusion is this, we can continue to provide Maryland voters with more methods in which to vote, vote by mail, vote, you know, we could extend, further extend the early voting period, online vote, heck, whatever it takes. I don't think we're going to see a sustained upward trend in voter participation until we improve the the process and provide a, a mechanism for improving the outcomes of elections. I think it has to be part of a package, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. I think number one, uh, you know, redistricting reform that completely takes the process out of the hands of self-interested stakeholders. Yeah. Number two, I think we have to eliminate the corrosive influence of dark money in the political process, because right now people believe that it's hopelessly tainted. And number three, we have to get to a system uh, where we're comfortable with ranked choice voting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did not agree with certainly the last bit of those things, but uh, I mean, money, yes. Oh my God, dark money, yes. But ranked choice voting is one of those things over the years. I'm like, yeah, why not? It's a good idea. Let's do it. I think we've got to move on because this is this has been incredible. We have other topics to talk about. So I am going to open up my banana moon pie. My God, that's a moon pie. Scrumptious <laughs> and delicious, if not nutritious, and it's not. And, and so, as as mentioned, I think our, our bridge topic should be should be uh, the American pastime of baseball. And so, Lan, I'm just going to get to the point. Both teams are in rebuilding mode. Do you, do you think a uh, Beltway series in say 2026, 2027 is a reality? Oh, of course. And, uh, what's been remarkable about the Orioles and the the Nationals ever since the, the Nats. Oh, God, you're just taunting me with by eating that delicious banana moon pie. Is it, it absolutely is delicious. Is it a snack? Is it lunch? Who knows? It's just damn good. Uh, <laughs> but the, but the, the fortunes of these two franchises have really kind of marched in parallel over the past 17 years. They were both down and out in the latter part of the, of the aughts. 
they rose to prominence around the same time uh, in tw that 2012, 2014. I remember the 2012, uh, that, that fateful night in October of 2012, when in the afternoon, the Yankees defeated the Orioles in game five of the American League Division Series. I was listening to it from the parking lot at the Branch Avenue Metro Station, where I then hopped onto the train to go downtown to watch the game five between the Nationals and the Cardinals, which was the infamous Drew Storen meltdown. It was a tremendous choke. Oh, I yeah. remember watching that game on. Oh, yeah, horrific day. It just, I, I still have, I, you know, I still have, I still have dreams about that game, and I still, ten years later, I have dreams that Drew Storen got the third strike on David Fries, and we advanced to the National League Championship Series. All of which is to say, could it happen again? Of course. I, I like the direction that the Orioles are on right now. They're exciting to watch. They're fun. A couple things are happening here. Both of the teams are facing two issues. One is that the primary source of a team's equity is television. Mm -hmm. And we have a TV deal with the regional Masson network that is fatally flawed, never should have been consummated in the first place, and has never lived up to its uh, hope for potential. It's, it's kind of a disaster. And the second is we have ownership uncertainty. We don't know how long the Angelos family is going to be in control of the Baltimore Orioles. And we do know that the, Nash that the Lerner family which has owned the Nationals since 2006, is actively shopping the team. Right. And some would suggest is paring down payroll in order to make the balance sheets more attractive for a prospective buyer. So I think we have a TV issue. I think we have ownership issues that are going to be influencing a lot of corporate decisions moving forward and influencing player personnel decisions moving forward long term. Yeah, I think I think both are going to be okay. I do think that we're going to see a Beltway series in our lifetime. Steve, I know you got opinions on this. While I enjoy yep. continue to enjoy this scrumptious banana moon pie, Len, it's it's even a little bit greasy, like the oh. good ones are. So, so it's fresh. The oh, absolutely. Yeah, the icing right. is not flaky. Uh, it's not crumbly. It is just everything a moon pie should be. Oh, when the cake is the, the cake. That, yeah, well, that, that, well, look. I mean, look. It's that's just gold. That's just deliciousness right there. In the cake, the radioactive yellow icing and marshmallow are disappearing. <laughs> My God, it is, it is <laughs> a hillbilly macaroon. You're killing me, Bill. You're killing me. Steve, Steve but, uh, baseball, <laughs> baseball. While my blood sugar spikes. Well, as far as baseball, I, I agree with a lot of what Lynn said there. I mean, the the TV deal, which obviously goes back to really the deal MLB cut with the Angeloses or Peter specifically for there to be a Nats team in the first place, you know, the whole regional claim and, and all of that, um, you know, from a business standpoint, I understand where Angelos tried to maximize his leverage in that situation, but it created what is a God awful TV deal that I, I think it's diminishing returns for both franchises, quite frankly. Um, so, so that was problem number one, but as far as the teams, I do believe that they're 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 doing at least the Orioles are doing the right thing. Um, I think that um, 
you know, I know we're going to have a third subject that will relate to this, but uh, I, I, I don't want to talk about the process because I think the fans in Philly with the Sixers kind of killed that whole trust the process uh, saying. So I will just say I am willing to walk with Elias. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I think they're doing the right things there, the smart things. They've, they've rebuilt the farm system to one that was at the bottom to one that, uh, you know, some of it was other teams had folks graduate up and they kind of naturally moved up. But, you know, they're a top five farm system. Uh, the big thing for me is that they they finally invested in international development. I mean, they right. now have camps and schools and academies in, you know, in, in the Dominican and, and South America. Just play. They're now in the international market, which I thought was killing the Orioles for years. So I, I like a lot of what they're doing. Um you know, obviously they, they've got to deal with some high payroll teams, but look, the Rays for years have been able to make it work with just doing smart personnel and talent, you know, evaluation. So there's no reason why you can't do it. I mean, it's not like the Blue Jays are overflowing with bank. I mean, they, they've got some money, but certainly not New York or Boston. Um, you know, the Nats, they, to your point, Lynn, they concern me because of what what is their strategy? Is it to, you know, you know, reduce value, reduce payroll in the name of selling, which, as you said, the learners are actively doing. Um, so I, I worry more really about them than I do the Orioles right now, because the Orioles uh, have a pretty clear direction. I don't know if John Angelos is really interested in owning the team post Peter Angelos. Um, I still see a, a, a scenario where we're going to look up and see Cal Ripken running that whole thing. I, I, I just keep maybe I'm dreaming or fantasizing or hoping, but uh I just don't know if John really wants to do it. And, and we could see that situation where, you know, Cal Jr. brings in a, a group that just takes that ownership. But the Nats are the ones that worry me. And, uh, you know, uh, hopefully it, whatever the learners are going to do, they just make a move so that we could get some stability down there. Because I think a Beltway series would be awesome. I think this area is a great place for it. I'm, I'm hoping, I know I'm changing subjects here, but I love that D.C. and Baltimore came together on a World Cup bid. And I hope that they're able to be a part of that because I think, again, it's just a great region for that sort of thing. So um, would love to see it in my lifetime. Absolutely. You know, it's it's a it's a fun rivalry. It's you know, and in Premier League soccer, uh, the the derby between yeah. uh, the Mersey, the Merseyside derby between Everton and Liverpool is regarded as the friendly derby. Right. And I would suggest that the rivalry between the Orioles and the Nats is the friendly rivalry in baseball. You see very little enmity between the partisans of both franchises uh, because for the 33 years in which the District of Columbia and the Washington region were without a baseball team, fans gravitated toward the Orioles. And uh, the reason we all now know that the reason Camden Yards was such an attractive location yep. uh, for the, the new stadium was its proximity to 95 South and Edward Bennett Williams really wanted to make it a convenient, you know, a, a convenient trip in and out for fans from that from that uh, region of the state. Uh, I do get concerned about the direction of the Nats, I, and I think that there was a particular moment last year when, when we were in the process of of doing our salary dump for prospects. I think people expected Max Scherzer to go. He was 36 years old, and his best days were probably behind him. He's a legendary figure, but he's on the downward slope. 
they recognized you know some of the other moves that were made to achieve you know, to get low to mid-level prospects in return but when they traded Trey Turner hmm. that was really off brand and that yeah. was that was the that was the first time that it became clear to the Nationals faithful that something other than baseball decisions were being made. Yeah. And that's that that was a that was a blinking red light for for the Nationals fan base right there. And now you know now there's talk about Soto being traded. I think if you were to see that yeah. happen and and his agent is knocking down the rumor, but if Soto were to be traded, I think you would see that would be something looking like more out of the Marlin situation than yeah. Washington Nationals. Yeah. The Nationals, in my opinion, and, and, and lend to your point. I mean, you know, whether it's Ravens, Commanders, or, or Orioles, Nationals, I, I just don't see a Baltimore-Washington rivalry. Uh, it lends to my bigger picture of Baltimore-Washington being more Oakland and San Francisco than they are north side and south side of Chicago, right. Yankees, Mets, or even or even north uh, of Los Angeles and Los Angeles city proper. <clears throat> but, but uh, you know, the nationals sh should not go there. They should not go fire sale. And that's what trading Soto would be. Uh, first off, they can't get the advantage of teams like the Astros and apparently the Orioles would have because of the new draft lottery system. Although if they did finish within the last six, they would be in the lottery and let's face it, you know, whether it's the first pick in the draft or the sixth, that should be a pretty damn good ball player that can help them for many years. But also their, their, my perception of their farm system is not that it's in the horrific shape that say the Astros was, the Marlins was, the Orioles was. Uh, so yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, I would, I would, uh, maybe keep those pieces and then the pieces that they have and then start building you know, there are probably some of their arms that they could trade. I mean, you know, could Corbin be a, a, a trade chip? You no, know, right. probably, you know, definitely. Josh Bell but, is going to go yeah. somewhere. Yeah, but uh, to, to trade somebody like Soto, who is a year or two away from entering the prime of his career, right. uh, look at Manny Machado in, 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 in San Diego right now. And, I mean, yes, the Machado trade did make sense at the time. But also, yes, look at all that productivity that that we're missing. My my last take on on the ownership of the teams, I have a feeling that in about five years or maybe less, uh, Ted Leonsis is going to be owning one of these teams and Steve Bishotti the other. I'm just not sure which one's going to own which team. That's a good point. I, I will before I depart the topic altogether. I will put in a plug for. Mike Rizzo, the president and general manager of the Nationals, because yeah. we've become accustomed over time to questioning his moves. But I want to—I just—I think it's important to keep in mind the historical perspective that that Mike Rizzo really, through his master mastery of the trade process, really built that team, the core of that team that was dominant for the better part of the decade. If you can go back and look at some of the trades he made dealing Ryan Langerhans, a journeyman fourth outfielder to the Mariners for Michael Morse, trading uh, Matt Capps, you know, a, a, an aging reliever to the Minnesota Twins for Wilson Ramos, trading uh, a, a pitcher, Abaladeo, who never materialized to the Yankees 
for Tyler Clippard. I mean, these were essential pieces in the in those championship runs, particularly of 2012 through 2016. And he did it uh, bringing in, uh, shoring up the bullpen in 2017 by bringing in Sean Doolittle and Brendan Kinsler and Ryan Madsen through, through uh, low-grade trades. He has been a master of the trade process. To be fair, his he has not had the same success in the draft. And right. the farm system right now is kind of bare. Um, yeah. But he did keep us on top for the better part of a decade, and nothing will ever take away those memories for Nationals fans. Now we'll just have to see what the next yeah. draft looks like. Yes. And, and you're right there. You're right there, Len. I would say he, his, if you could say it's a failure, I don't know if you could call it that, but his shortcoming was if he had a better bullpen through that entire run, I think they had multiple titles. Yeah. I, I yeah. think he got it together in 17 and, and got the title after that. But if, if he would have been, it, it may have been he got the best people and they just didn't produce, but whatever it was, they were a better bullpen away from minimum two, maybe even three titles during that run. Because the meltdowns, like you, you talked about the you know 2012 situation, um, you know, they, everything else was there. Everything else was there. Completely agree. And I, I think there were a lot of eyebrows that were raised after the 2012 meltdown by Drew Storen, why he was kept in that role in 2013 into 2014. Um, Drew Storen was probably a closer who was, yeah, who was probably best situated by virtue of his temperament and psychology to be a setup man. So, yep. Len, you know, you mentioned before how you met me and, and I will say, I will, you know, I can't really match your eloquence, but I, I had a little bit of a, of a similar thought about perhaps your, your past. And I would dare say that at some point in the late eighties in South Dorchester high school's auditor, uh, gymnasium, Oh boy. George South and Pistol Pez Watley as they <laughs> wrestled the second match of a card that would feature Ric Flair versus Wahoo McDaniel, probably Tolly Blanchard versus, you know, Magnum TA. Um, they didn't know that Len Foxwell was going to be in the arena watching the greatest spectacle ever before mankind. That would be professional wrestling. Um, you know, am, am I that far off? I mean, did it start at the South Dorchester High School? Where, where, where did your affinity for the fine uh, chimera of sports, entertainment, trash talk, bombast, uh, blood, sweat, and tears, where did that all originate? Well, I started watching wrestling back in 1981. And, 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 you know, you have to, you, you know, in, in the old WWF, you, you, you can draw your epical references from who the number one contender was at the time. And when I first turned on the TV on WDCA Channel 20 for the 11 o'clock showing of, of championship wrestling, the number one contender to the coveted belt held by Bob Backlund was none other than, was none other than Adrian Adonis. Not the horrible Adrian. Not the adorable one. But no, the, the, old, the New York street biker who was led into battle by the Hollywood fashion plate, classy Freddie Blassie. So that <laughs> kind of tells you where I was. 
my arena of choice was actually the Wicomico Youth in Civic Center, uh, which was a which is still an amazingly well kept arena. Maximum seating capacity about six thousand. My first card was in January of 1983, and it was billed as the Night of Champions. Imagine this card, if you will. Bob Backlund defending the belt against the former champion, superstar Billy Graham. Pedro Morales defending the intercontinental strap against magnificent Morocco and the Strongbow brothers putting their tag straps on the line against Afa and Sika the feared wild Samoans and on the, and, and even on the undercard, I remember uh, an epic battle between Rocky Johnson and the Japanese samurai master, Mr. Fuji, in which, ah. in which the, 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 the dreaded salt came. The salt, I was going to ask if the salt was thrown. Rocky Johnson emerged victorious after a hard battle, but uh, he did, he did it with, with reddened eyes because Mr. Fuji nailed him with the salt. And from there, but there was one great card held at the CSD Auditorium, and you both will appreciate this. It was a it was a um, it's a charity card for I forget what the charity was, but it was an NWA card, and on the on the Flair Luger undercard was a match between Magnum TA and Gorgeous Jimmy Garvin for the U.S. title, and. Mm. Jimmy and my friends and I still talk about this to this day. TA comes out to, you know, modest applause. Right. Then you hear the strains of ZZ Top, sharp dressed man coming. And here comes Jimmy Garvin down the aisle as the villain, as the heel in this match. The place explodes for Jimmy Garvin. And it was completely random. And you can see Jimmy up there doing everything he could to try to regain some heel heat because. The whole, the whole pro, the whole match was built for TA to be the good guy and Jimmy to be the bad guy, and it just wasn't working. And the more Jimmy did to piss off the fans, the more he was getting cheered. And to this day, I don't know where all that love for Jimmy Garvin came from in the back roads of Dorchester County, but there you go. Well, was he accompanied by Precious? He was. Led, he was led into battle by the beautiful Precious. That might be why. That may be why. But, you know, that was the beauty of the NWA, which attracted me to the, the NWA back in the 80s. You know, I had a job where we closed shop at 5. We were done at 5.30. And I would rush home because this was back when TBS did everything at the 05 and the 3.5 as opposed yes. to the top of the hour. And you get home by 6.05 on the Superstation or as Dusty Rose said, the mother ship on TBS. Yes, sir. Um, and, and do that Saturday night show. But that was the whole thing with the NWA because – even Rick Rude, because I, he would come out. I remember going to a, a house show, and he would come out to Charday's Smooth Operator, yes, which sir. was the coolest thing ever. <laughs> I mean, the man's walking out to Charday. I mean, how cool is that? And same thing. People loved it. You you would hear the beginning of that song in the place of the horsemen. People loved them. So I don't know what it was about the NWA, but, you know, they love the Midnight Express. They couldn't stand the Rock and Roll Express, especially exactly. when uh, you know the tennis racket would come out with Jim Cornette. But it, it just seemed to be an NWA thing where WWF, they love their Hogan and their Warrior. But in the NWA, the better, the better. <laughs> it, it seemed to be a thing. Well, and to that, and to that, a couple years ago, 
I I met the I met the Horseman at a Maryland Championship Wrestling card. So I had you were there. That's right. I was with you. So I would I had I had already met Flair before, but I had never met Tolly and Arn and Wyndham was the fourth Horseman of of, of choice. Wow. I would have preferred Oli, but I think Oli. Oh. And hates those guys. Yeah, the very best, yeah. best iteration of the Horseman. Right and there. and and when I and I said I said to Tully Blanchard, I said I used to hate the hell out of you and R, but I loved Flair and and whoever the fourth was, if it was Luger and or Wyndham or or whoever. And Barry Wyndham was like nodding, like he had heard that before. Tully Blanchard was like what nobody has ever said that before like i've heard of people like always cheering all of us or hating all of us but i was like it was your presence i said you know people want you know you wanted to be cool you wanted to be rick flair you know uh, uh somebody we know in in howard county here josh friedman you know gets on facebook says how could rick flair ever beat anybody's ass well nobody said that rick flair was going to beat anybody's ass but he was going to make you, he was, he could back it up physically. Plus it was the entire package. It was the charisma. It's the nature boy. It's, you know, he's going to be in your face and what are you going to do about it? Fat boy. That's Ric Flair. The, yeah. You know, and, 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 and so, yeah, we love these guys, but hated these guys, you know, the whole concept of the anti-hero a full 15 years before Vince exploited it in the Attitude Era. I think he's, I think the attitude of the anti-hero he started in the NWA because the WWF was really geared more toward like cartoonish narratives. It was you had the you had the superhero versus the villain, and there was and the the characters were drawn in kind of a black and white schematic, right? There were no redeeming qualities to King Kong, Bundy, or John Studd. And then meanwhile, guys like, you know, Hulk Hogan could do no wrong, right? But the characters were drawn with shades of gray in the NWA so that people would love the Midnight Express because they were seen as cooler and more dynamic, better looking than the Rock and Roll Express. Look, in 1989, three, three matches happened that I consider to this day to be the three greatest matches ever fought in an American wrestling ring and that was a trilogy between Ric Flair and Rick Steamboat. Oh, yes. Yes. The first match in Chicago was when Steamboat won the title. Um, the In New Orleans, there was, I think, probably the best of the tri trilogy, the two out of three falls match between Steamboat and Flair. And then Flair regains the title in Nashville in May of 1989. But, you, but something happened during that trilogy where – the fans really adopted Ric Flair and really started to cheer Flair, who at the time was, was working heel and began to boo Steamboat, who was the milk and cookies, all-American yep. face. Yep. And all of a sudden there became this recognition that maybe not only was wrestling changing, but society was changing. And we had to realign our storylines to allow for that fan base of the quote-unquote heel to grow. Because they were actually yeah. ones putting the butts in the seats. So, so you yeah. mentioned, so you mentioned the Steamboat Flare trilogy. Well, yeah. we, you know, we also talked in the pre-show about the greatest, the greatest uh, matches we've ever seen. 
So to also to your point, Len, you know, people doing not just flips, but unexpected flips were mastered in the NWA turns rather, and were mastered in the NWA more so than WWF. Case in point, what happened at the end of that trilogy when Terry Funk came out, congratulated Ric Flair after three brutally exhausting matches and just demolished him. And then, and then that turned into a, uh, an epic battle between the head of the Funk Clan and the Nature Boy. As, and, and then one of the, some of the pinnacle of it I witnessed in one of the best matches I've ever seen live, which was at the Baltimore Arena. And it was still the Baltimore Arena, not First Mariner, not Royal Farms, the Baltimore Arena. As Ric Flair and Sting fought Terry Funk and the Great Muda. Ah, uh, yes. Fall, falls count anywhere match. There was green mist. There was red mist. Yeah, the there green, were crimson uh, masks. There was a branding iron. There was the scorpion death lock. It was, it was just all on. Some of the greatest yeah. other spectacles I've ever witnessed. And, you know, there, there's, there's such a parallel between wrestling and politics because it's so much about personality and, and heat, you know, be it good heat or bad heat and cult of personality. But, you know, um, you know, we mentioned before on Channel 20, the WWF, um, you know, I, I would get both Baltimore and D.C. stations here. And so you would watch that at, at, at 11 on Channel 20, and then you could tune in again on Channel 45 at 4 p.m. Mm-hmm. And then my family would do the fateful turn to Lawrence Welk at 5 p.m., creating <laughs> cultural and social whiplash into my brain that I don't think I've ever recovered from to this day. But, but what would I witness? I mean, I mean, uh, you know, live. Um, the great match of the, int- I mean, in the morning on a Saturday with NWA, learning that Magnum TA was in a horrific motorcycle accident and yep. Dusty Rhodes had a mystery partner for tonight's match in Baltimore. Yep. And then that night going to the match inside a 15 foot high steel cage and opposing Flair and Blanchard were none other than the American dream and the Russian nightmare, Nikita yeah. Koloff. Yeah. Uh, Magnum- Nikita Koloff having, having been devastated but even after a monumental best of seven series between he and Magnum TA, the fact that he gained so much respect yeah. and admiration for his fallen for his fallen opponent during right. the process, he rallied around the fallen Magnum TA banner and joined forces. That was a huge deal, right? The and then the and then and then the dream was getting brutalized, if you will in the middle of the ring by Flair and Blanchard. And then Nikita was looking at the carnage before him. And then the crowd to approval, carnage, crowd, carnage, crowd. And then ran in and cleared house. Cleared Absolute house. house. Absolutely uh, right. Uh, and, and, the, and the run up to WrestleMania three in the epic savage uh, 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 steamboat match, you know, went on wrestling superstars uh, you know, uh, Ricky Steamboat's larynx was was pulverized by the ring bell from the Macho Man, and then the Macho Man was being interviewed. Well, Bruno Sammartino was sending the show out from backstage with a medical update on the dragon, and then Randy Savage came out and started with, "Oh, did you see how I put some mustard on that hot dog?" 
which caused Bruno to yell, are you proud of what you did? Drop his microphone and, and start choking the life out of the macho man, which then started a San Martino Savage um, uh, program, which I saw happen at, at Baltimore Arena. Rowdy Roddy Piper, his face turn as he got destroyed in, in the Piper's pit, which had become Adrian Adonis's flower shop and then come out. Uh, maybe one of the most underrated wrestlers in all of professional wrestling, the mass superstar fighting as the super machine with along with the giant machine and the Hulk machine, the, the identity of which is not known to this day, fighting King, King Kong Bundy, John Studd, and Paul Mr. Wonderful Orndorff. I mean, we, we we're talking television. I mean, how and pay-per-view. I mean, The Undertaker just, you know, dropping Mick Foley, power bombing him right through or choke slamming him right to hell. Literally, as JR. Literally said. to hell. Choke slam no. to hell. In I, I was I was in, I was in, on the thumbtacks. I mean, I, I mean I was in RAR last weekend, uh having having a couple of beers. Uh, cause I, you know, I love my breweries and on the big screen, they were actually playing hell in a cell from 1996 hmm. and they showed the choke slam when the undertaker brought Mick Foley down through the top of the cage onto the, you know, onto the floor covered in thumbtacks. And, and we literally thought, Mick Foley's body was broken. We thought he was left for dead right in the center of the squared circle. And even, I mean, 25 years later, people are just into the match, room full of guys drinking beer. We're just into it, just like it was happening live. Yeah. By the way, Bill, you mentioned the mass Superstar. One of the things I will never quite understand was in the run-up to the Bob Backlund loss to the Iron Sheik, which set the stage for Hulk Hogan defeating the Iron Sheik and ushering yep. in the 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 uh, the, uh, the expansion phase. At MSG, I believe. In MSG, yeah. everything was leading up to Mass Superstar taking the belt off of Bob Backlund. Mm. He was this indestructible force. He had he had broken the neck of young Eddie Gilbert, who had been the protege of Bob Backlund. Yeah, yeah. He was he was led into battle by the manager of champions, the Grand Wizard of Wrestling, and every, the assumption was that he would take the belt off of Bob Backlund, and it was a swerve because I think the booking had to have an anti-American guy to set the stage for Hulk Hogan to be the all-American hero. Right. Okay. The, all I'm going to say is Mick Foley's tooth came out of his nostril in that match. Yes. Steve, yes Steve, I got to calm down. Speak to this topic. No, I, I, you guys are hitting it all very well. And, and, and by the way, can we do a quick shout out to one nature boy, Ric Flair, who, uh, if you believe words, he is retiring. Uh, he has been working towards his last match ever. Um, I believe it's going to be in Nashville in a few weeks. Uh, opponent to be named, but there's going to be a big celebration of Flair. Uh, he's actually been working out with Jay Lethal, who, by the way, does the greatest Ric Flair impersonation you will ever hear. It is so spot on. It is scary how good the impersonation uh, Jay Lethal does. But they've been working out. I've seen their stuff on Instagram. And uh, it, it flares advertising it as his last match ever. There's going to be a celebrity roast and all kinds of stuff. So uh, shout-outs to Ric Flair. If there was a Mount Rushmore professional wrestling, Ric Flair would be on it. I mean, maybe somebody who cuts a better promo than Ric Flair, I'll wait. <laughs> Flair, <laughs> his, Flair is the king. He is the undisputed king. 
Yeah. So right, um, is Babe Ruth. The, he the, is the Mount Rushmore of pro wrestling talkers is Flair, Piper, uh, yeah. Chris Jericho, and and I will actually give a little bit of credit to this fella Dean Ambrose, going a little bit more current, a little bit more current generation. Okay, I will I will go with you on the first three. On the fourth, I'm going to go old school. And say Nick Bockwinkle. The I never point. heard Nick. If you if you go and you look at Nick Bockwinkle's old promos, he was he was a more erudite, urbane, mm-hmm. cultivated version of Ric Flair, and it, it wouldn't sell in this day and age. But he carried that AWA, that Midwestern promotion, for for years through the seventies and into the early eighties. I'm going to go with Bachwinkle. Go and check some of his work out on YouTube. I, 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 I shall. Len, do you, do you check out wrestling anymore in the current era? Not as much, you know, it, to me, and I understand why things have to evolve, you know, I mean, and I don't want to be the old guy rem- remembering the old days, but you know, I grew up in a time as did all of us when the televised product was merely the infomercial for the arena so the 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 primary source of equity and revenue for these promotions were the house shows and everything you would get from the house shows now the model has completely flipped 180 degrees and it's all about tv and to me there's there's so much that happens on tv you know angles being introduced angles being blown off titles being changed yeah crazy moves it's like it's like watching an action movie. The first time a, a move uh, a, a building blows up, it's remarkable. The twentieth time it blows yeah. up, it loses its punch, and that's kind of where I feel to add on TV right now. So I just and I think it's just we all as we get older, we kind of become glued to the way things used to be. Yeah, I, um, I, I think the last true wrestling innovation I think I saw was the mid '90s with the NWL. Uh, Speaking of which, I am prominently in the Great American Bash 1996. Myself, my friend Nathaniel Forgotson, now who would later be known as Platinum Nat, manager in Maryland Championship Wrestling, and uh, some of his other compadres from Boston were right at at Ringview, all during the pay-per-view, and we, we held up a giant bed sheet that had Mongo Sucks written on it right before the start of the Kevin Green and Steve McMichael versus nice. Arn Anderson and Ric Flair tag match. Nice. Oh, it's if you yeah, have Peacock nice. and you can get all the WWE content, yeah. go in there. We stopped Tony Schiavone in his tracks during the announcing. It was gorgeous. Bill, one of, the, one, of the, one of the great moments of my life, and if my friend John Horn is listening to this, he'll know exactly what I'm about to say. Picture in our high school, like the, stair, the staircase up to our second floor bank of classrooms had a landing about maybe five feet high. And for reasons known only to me at the time, I get up on the top of the landing twirl my finger in that in that clockwise position as only Randy Savage could. And I do an elbow smash onto the head of this kid named Manuel Cena with such devastating force. I didn't think I was going to hit him as I did, as hard as I did, but with such devastating force, he is sprawled out in the proverbial heap. 
and our teacher, uh, our, our teacher Patty O'Connor comes out and she says, what did you do? And I said, Elizabeth, damn that <laughs> And I was in a zone. I was in an absolute zone. And, and, she, and she said, you are in serious trouble. And had my father, rest his soul, not been the president of our private school's board of directors and the, the platinum donor, I probably would not have re-entered those Halloween halls of learning. But it was one of my greatest moments. I mean, it was perfect landing, falls in a crumpled heap, um, nipping, bulging. <laughs> that is that is epic. And and it had and it had a butterfly effect because Manuel Cena later went to Boston and told his cousin John about what happened. <laughs> And then there you go. He was never. He was never the same. The, the kid he didn't the see kid you. Knew, the kid moved back to New Jersey the next year. I don't know what ever happened to him, but he he. I mean, he will never ever forget that day in March of 1987, which was at the height of Randy Savage's powers, as, as you can remember. That was oh, the lead up to WrestleMania three, and the that that elbow smash had such particular force and fury at that time. Um, Oh, it's one of my great moments. Well, I, I would say that it does, that the sport of Kings does is starting to bring back an interest again. You know, WWE is best when they have competition. And now they have great competition in the form of this program, All Elite Wrestling. And, and now factions are reforming again. Tag team wrestling matters. Storylines matter. Uh, mm -hmm. WWE just, just wound up pulling a coup and uh, got Cody Rhodes back from doing six years in AEW. And, and Cody has, has potential to be every bit his father's equal on the mic. His dad could cut a promo. Yeah, and the last was. promo dad, I heard yeah. was an, if you will, short of being a dusty classic. Um, yeah. so, so both the products have anything to go. Steve, I feel like we are horning up this, this part of this conversation. You want me to follow Lynn's story with anything? I mean, well, I don't know. I don't know if I can, but what I will say as far as today's wrestling, I think Jericho, I believe Jericho is the driving force behind AEW. I think he's pretty heavily involved in that organization. And because he's old school, I think he has taken that feel to it. Uh, Jarrett totally screwed the pooch with uh, Impact. I That product was... It was your classic 90s Turner, WCW. I was going to bring in all these big stars and everybody will watch right. these guys who are well past their prime. Uh, Jericho, I think, has done a good job with AEW. Their women's division is the truth. Um, oh, yes, it is. But AEW's women's division is as good a women's division as, you will, as you've ever seen. I mean, they are really good. So I think Jer that he's got that old school flavor. Uh, Brian Pillman Jr. is actually uh, wrestling now. Oh wow! Um, oh, he's, a, he's a he's a jobber though. He's like yeah. a, a start of card wrestler. Well, an interesting job. aside, they had a, they had an event in Baltimore, and Harbaugh and some of the Ravens showed up, and apparently Harbaugh was an old college roommate of Pillman Senior. Yeah, and so Pillman Jr. got like gave a shout out to Harbaugh and the Ravens. Because they, you know, Harbaugh came out to see Pillman's son. That was kind of cool 
a little Ravens tie in there. For I, you. I would hate to be that RA who has to oversee the dorm that had Brian Pillman and John Harbaugh as roommates. Because you, you want to talk yeah. about some high-strung people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolute anarchy. Yeah. Chaos so. has ensued. The proverbial Pier 6 brawl. <laughs> Katie, bar the doors. Pandemonium! Pandemonium is broken loose here. Yeah, I, remember, I, remember, I remember the old uh, the old UWF. Uh, oh, Ted DiBiase, Hacksaw, Hacksaw Jim Duggan with those great A hams. And, uh, and, and hot stuff, Eddie, hot stuff, Eddie, I remember hot stuff, Eddie Gilbert running into the ring to seek vengeance on Michael Hayes, the fabulous, the original fabulous Freebird. And oh, there's geez. a young Jim Ross saying, and Eddie Gilbert's beating the hell out of Michael Hayes. He's beating the hell out of Michael Hayes right here on UWF Wrestling. And he came back after the commercial break and said, fans, I'm so sorry that I said I, I said a, a profanity that I should not have said on live television. It was not live. I was watching at 1230 in the morning. Um, but I shouldn't have said that to, the, to all of you children, those young people who are who are listening in this evening, I, I apologize. I, I gotta do better than that. <laughs> Good old JR. JR Tim Ross beating the hell out of Michael Hayes. Hollywood Johnny Tatum was down there. Um, Dr. Death Steve Williams was in there for a Absolutely, for a while. it's where he got his start. Ted DiBiase did his heel turn there before he became the million dollar man. The original Ted DiBiase, the uh original North American slash intercontinental champion who dropped to drop the belt to Pat Patterson at the fictitious tournament in That's Rio right. de Janeiro. That's and, right. For which no footage survived. And unfortunate how that happened, that uh that fire at the archives. Uh, Last question, and then we gotta wrap this up because good lord, <laughs> who runs for and, and to wrap up all these topics. Who runs for national office first, Dwayne Johnson or Glenn Jacobs? Oh, I think Glenn Jacobs. Yeah. Like, yes. I mean Dwayne Johnson. I mean, I mean that would be about a ninety-seven percent pay cut for Dwayne Johnson. Yeah, exactly. Um, no, but Glenn Jacobs has 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 materialized into a rather conventional Republican politician down in yeah. I think Tennessee. Yeah, Knoxville, right? Is that yes, right? yes, he's the mayor of the of the. They call it mayor of a county uh, right. in that area, right? Who I mean, who would who would have thought that a guy who whose whose previous occupation cast him as an arsonist mm -hmm. and a necrophiliac could then take those credent those sterling credentials and carve out a successful career in municipal politics. People involved in politics in Maryland thought so, which I mean, comes to tell you something. I mean, some of those some of those storylines involving Kane, you know, and they were a little rough. They were out there during the high the attitude era. That was out there. So yeah, I, yeah. But I did see him on um, that show that that reality show where um, Stephanie McMahon and and Paul Levesque. Uh, Triple H. They tried to reclaim old WWE uh, artifacts. And Glenn Jacobs was on the show because they were trying to recapture one of the most valuable pieces of antiquity that the WWE has to offer, which was the urn that the ah. Undertaker 
carry into, I think it was WrestleMania 12. Mm. And somehow it's gotten lost over the, through the mists of time. And they went down to talk to Glenn Jacobs and say, hey, do you know what might have happened to it? But he was in his office in a, in a suit and tie and they're having a great time. Cool. Amazing. Absol absolutely yep. amazing. And let's not forget, I mean, I mean, I know, I know what you were talking about with the arsonist thing, but don't let's not forget he set fire to good old JR. He set fire to JR. Um, yeah. he, and he also he, tried to burn down an orphanage, you know, exhumed the body of Katie Vick and uh, just a, a number of other just violated the body of it was Katie Vick, right? He tried to violate that was yeah that yeah yeah just 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 what a you know and before that he was a a homicidal uh uh super sadistic uh dentist isaac yankum Dr. isaac yankum absolutely there you, go. Um, you know during that short-lived period in the early 90s when characters were coming out of wwe creative with professions you yeah. know like dr isaac yankum and um Barry Darso, I think, was yeah. the was the repo man. Uh T.L. Right. Hopper, the uh Hopper. the plumber. Right. Yep. Um, there was a guy, um, like a, a baseball pitcher, like like uh like you know, like an I forget what his name was, but these were some really terrible characters. And who's the race car Waylon Mercy? Yeah, who's the race car driver? Holly, something or another? Crash Holly. Holly. Crash yeah, race Holly. car driver. Yeah. yeah. Who was a who became later became the WWE hardcore champion? Yes. So yep. Yep. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna linger for the rest of the day thinking about election night of 2022 with President Abrams taking on Senator Jacobs. Senator Jacobs. Have fun with that. Can, can you can you see it? Yeah. yeah. I actually can. You know who else became a, a who else pursued a career in politics after he retired, and I think he's out of it now. But the guy who played Austin you know, Austin Idol down in the old Mid Southern Territory in Tennessee, mm. his real name was Mike McCord. He became a a, a local politician down in Hillsborough County in, in the Tampa area. So there are people who have done this. Glenn Jacobs seems to have made a very seamless connection, though. And he will be an upgrade for Marsha Blackburn if he does if he does become a senator. So what the hell? Uh, Touche. Well, and well, and and we are being remiss in this entire politics and wrestling conversation to ignore the OG of all of this, who would be one Jesse the Body Ventura. You're exactly right. In 1998, uh, running against, uh, let's see, running against uh, Skip Humphrey. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was Skip Humphrey and Norm Coleman. Uh, yes. The former mayor of Minneapolis, yeah. who was the Republican nominee. And Skip was a DFL nominee. And Jesse, the body won, uh, won uh, in, as a third party candidate. That was your I was I wasn't paying much attention because between Glenn Denning's successful reelection campaign against Alan Sauerbrey, for which I was proudly the press secretary and watching the Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa steroid infused home run chase that year. I didn't have much space for anything else, but I do remember that election night when those returns came in. Yeah. The only problem with him as governor. And of course, you know, as a Navy, as a, as a Navy seal, you cannot be a dumb man. I mean, the man is, is genius level IQ. And of course a physical specimen, 
But, you know, the only problem with him as governor is that he had absolutely zero base of support from day one. Right. But don't forget, he ain't got time to bleed. Ain't got time to bleed. And he didn't. And I think <laughs> right. that- no, you remember, remember the, the, the epic battle between Josh Friedman and I on, on, uh, on Facebook that one day? When, Steve uh, was Steve was in that he was on the periphery there, of that and 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 uh, Josh said Josh asked the question how much are the taxpayers paying you to waste time on Facebook during the workday and I said I'll just say it like this I spent more money on spilt liquor <laughs> there it is bars from one end of this world to the other than you made. <laughs> <laughs> which 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 elicited a a very stern response rebuke a, a rebuke from who was uh, who was that one at the time I can't remember Ju- Julia Jackson McCrady Howard oh, County yeah. blogger was not in favor of my spilt liquor speech and no. did not think it was appropriate discourse no. she did not think it was appropriate for me to call myself the kiss dealing wheeling dealing limo ride and jet They're flying son of, a gun. son of a gun she did no not no no they she did not approve and uh yeah josh josh and i josh and i get along well although he he sent me some insanity <laughs> from some right-wing nutball who runs a website about here about one of our uh, beloved local development attorneys and and Glenn, you you've known you know how much I've grown to love local development attorneys over the years out here, but I was just like, Josh, get this trash out of my face from this man because I don't you know the only thing I want to read that comes from this man is his obituary because I you know I'm just tired of the jerkiness and. You know, people who bring up people's pasts and, you know, well, so-and-so was kicked out of so-and-so, you know, to me, that's just trash. I mean, that's holier-than-thou nonsense. You know, that's that's a little beyond the pale. But, you know, where people are in the here and now, that that's fair game. But, uh, yeah, that, that, that thing that happened when I was – that was back when I was working at APL. That was a glorious Monday afternoon. That entire exchange. I can't even remember how it begun, but I do remember how it ended. I think somehow it started on air conditioning in public schools, and, and that before long, before long, we were talking about Barry Windham turning on Lex Luger at the Clash of the Champions in 1998. Told him he um, wouldn't be there for you, Lex Barry. Well, told told you he be there for him. The immortal words of James Julius Caesar Dillon. There it is, JJ. J.J. Dillon, the manager of champions, the guiding light of the four horsemen. Who has family, who has ties to Maryland. He has grandchildren in Maryland. Right there. That I also learned at that night when Steve and I attended MCW. But Bill, when we talk about the four horsemen, we could, you cannot overstate the underrated role that Arn Anderson had played in keeping that group together. No, no, absolutely not. If, if the four horsemen were the Oakland A's of the early 70s, he would have been Sal Bando, okay, because yes. he was the glue. Arn could go singles. He could go tag. He could, yep. he could work with Flair. He could work with Blanchard. He was the enforcer. He could headline D cards. 
he was absolutely invaluable. And we don't give him enough credit in the annals of history, but yeah. he was brilliant. And he was also strong on the mic. He I was. Mean, okay. he, he, could, he, could, he could fire you up. He um, was saying the bottom line before Stone Cold did. Or before yeah, Stone Cold made that famous, he would do an interview. And the bottom line, I mean, he was saying that years before Stone Cold made that popular. Uh, you know, and what, just and to get credit for that. In his and his and his brutal and merciless attack on Ole Anderson, when Ole <laughs> when Ole uh, skipped out on a card to go attend his son's wrestling match, high school um, wrestling match, and Arn Anderson joined forces with Flair and Tully to yep. pulverize Ole and leave him in the proverbial crumpled heap. That was absolutely gangster. Oh, yes, it was. I, I, ironically, it would be some 30 years later when Arn would be managing his own son as part of a tag team in AEW. And, and recently, up to recently, Tully was the manager there, and there was a tag match between the two teams where Arn and Tully got into a little bit of a shoving confrontation during the match. I was praying that they would put one final match involving the two of them on a card but alas yeah. it's not to be totally left the organization and and i think they're going to bring in bret hart is the rumor did you know that by the way we're way over time us but did you know that magnum ta terry allen is matt is married to tully blanchard's ex-wife yes yes huh? yes because i i follow tully's daughter tessa uh, who also seems a tad high strong. Yes. Uh, and, and, uh, and yeah, Tully's his, her, uh, yeah, yeah. Tully's her dad, but Magnum's her stepdad or something like that. It's, How in the world wild. did they never make an angle out of that? I mean, they were, they were rivals in the ring. They have, they have obviously have this common denominator. How did this not be turned by some good booker into I don't know. a really good angle? Don't know. Don't know. I mean, it's actually been amazing to me that that uh, other than I think he worked a few TV shows when he recovered. Magnum totally walked away from the business. Yeah, he, did. He, he, did, he did. He did accompany. He did accompany Dusty and Nikita down the aisle for the 1987. The Crockett Cup, right? The Crockett Cup. Yeah. He, he made his emotional comeback to the squared circle, escorting them to the ring. Um, I, wow. I forget who they beat to win the Crockett Cup. Was it the Road Warriors? I think it was. Yeah. In the Baltimore oh, arena. In the arena. Yeah, but he never he never took like a color commentator's spot no. or anything no. like that. You know, anything that would be easy on his travel and easy on his body. He just, he just decided to walk away. Yeah. Walk away. Also, I know, Bills, we've had a harder time keeping this show down than Ric Flair has keeping his alligators down. <laughs> Absolutely not. No, this is this is this has been a podcast of Ten Commandments proportions, but, but <laughs> worth every minute. And we, we shall we shall do another wrestling theme podcast. I'm thinking around the time of SummerSlam, and perhaps I can get the aforementioned Mister Forgotten in to talk about some of his. Uh, up close and personal interactions with some of the people we've talked about, but that would be fun. Len, I hope we can catch you in on that. I count on it. This has been, this has been the two, two best hours in my own sports entertainment. 
Uh, this has been absolutely epic, and I can't wait to show up again some, sometime soon. So thank you for having me. All right. Well, and with that, yeah, I you, think man. we probably ought to wrap up because anybody who's still paying attention to all this deserves combat pay. Uh, so, so thank you, Len, for a terrific conversation about a myriad of important topics. Well, all important to us. Let's say topics. May not always be important to you. There you go. Um, and Steve, any last words? I think one more word and we might lose the last two of our listeners. So that's a good idea. So <laughs> for He's Steve Hunt, my name is Bill Woodcock. You've been watching or listening to Forward Maryland. Another reason we went so long is we have no podcast next week. So listen to the first. Well, anyway, if you're listening two hours later, you've already listened to the whole damn thing. We'll hear you and we'll see you in two weeks. Take care, everybody. Bye.